1: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com.
0: For now, back to David.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 154, Henry VI, a weak king. So we've finally seen Henry V into his grave, a king who has claims to have been the greatest king ever of England. If anything was needed to convince everyone of the uncertainty of life and politics and history, his son Henry VI could, on the other hand, be a contender for the worst king ever to sit on England's throne. Now, I'm constantly conscious of plot spoilers. Yes, it might well be that the history of England is indelibly engraved on my heart, but not everyone is quite as nerdy as that. There may well be many listeners for whom English history is an exciting story just being revealed, to which they do not know the conclusion. So sorry about what follows, but let us just say that under Henry VI, in the words of Sid... The French step up to the Occy and make the greatest comeback since Lazarus. England descends into the chaos of the civil strife known as the Wars of the Roses. Henry himself is deposed from two thrones, France and England, and eventually very probably murdered. So, on the face of it at least, probably not the most encouraging start to a summary of a king and his reign. Clearly, the lad faced some challenges. By the way... For those of you new to this period of English history, the War to the Roses is fought between two families. That of Lancaster, to whom Henry IV to Henry VI belong, and York, to which Henry VI's successor belongs. Just for the purposes of understanding today's episode, you understand. Now, there is no historian revisionist enough to claim that Henry VI's reign was a triumph of kingship, to be emulated by the greatest leaders through the centuries. So, to all of you budding historians out there, that market niche remains unoccupied. If you want to make a name for yourself, go for it, and good luck with that. And so I hear you say, What is there to say about the historiography of Henry VI? Pretty much open and shut, is it not? He sucked, let's move over, the disastrous reign as quickly as possible, and get back to the glory. Well actually, if that is indeed what you are thinking... Then I had to take issue with you, gentle listener, since there have been changes and interesting challenges in the historiography of both Henry VI and the fifteenth century generally that I think are worth a mensch. But let us start with our lodestone of historical thought, Seller and Yatman, and then also the Ladybird History of the Kings and Queens of England.
2: What have they got to say about Henry the Sixth? Henry the Sixth, a very small king. Henry VI was only one year old and was thus rather a weak king. Indeed, the barons declared that he was quite numb and vague. When he grew up, however, he was such a good man that he was considered a saint, or alternatively, especially by the barons, an imbecile.
0: Now, Salar and Yateman might have been having a go at the received history of England, but I have to say this pretty much
2: lays out our choices. And now to Ladybird. Henry VI was only nine months old when he became king and he grew up to be simple-minded and sometimes quite mad. This was unfortunate for England.
0: Delightful and quite deliciously masterly understatement. Humiliation at the hands of the French, loss of all French possessions, a vicious civil war that tore England apart for 30 years. Unfortunate would seem to cover it, no need to get overexcited. Now that we have our baseline... The first issue in giving Henry a fair press is that evaluating sources for Henry VI and contemporary views is uniquely difficult, because of the constantly changing nature of the politics. So, Lancastrian chroniclers were likely to big the guy up, of course. Yorkists, the supporter of Henry's subsequent king, Edward IV, would of course put the boot in. And then the Tudors did their normal trick of rewriting history to make Henry Seventh look good, ably abetted and aided by Shakespeare and his pals. Just to draw the battle lines then and set up our next subject, there's a rather good book on the Wars of the Roses, The Hollow Crown, by a chap called Dan Jones. And he had a rather neat turn of phrase when he
2: wrote that Henry began his rule as a wailing baby and ended it as a shambling simpleton.
0: We have to bear in mind that Henry's position was unique in many ways and not all of them very helpful. Firstly, he's the youngest monarch ever to hit the throne and by some distance, he's just nine months old. He's the only English king to have been crowned and accepted as king by two nations, the French and the English. He had the same problem that my very own children have, that of following a giant. Ladies and gentlemen, a giant. And I'm not talking about the impact of the pies. That, incidentally, is the national sport of England, self-deprecating irony, should any of you believe that this is a problem my children actually have. But little Henry VI, he really did have the problem. He had a superman to follow. And a superman who'd set him up with a massively ambitious target of being king of two countries, one of which wasn't at all happy about the idea, a challenge even his superman dad might have struggled with, and one that would give his government the most enormous financial problems all the way through his reign. And unfortunately, also, Henry's was rather a long reign, 39 years. He might have done much better, like his dad to take an early death as the best career choice. The other thing to note in Henry's favour, as the historian Ralph Griffiths warns us, is to bear in mind the difference between the Henry of the minority when England is in the control of experienced regents, the Henry who assumed direct control of governance, and Henry after 1453 when he seems to have had a mental breakdown. The danger is if we assess his character based on this post-1453 experience only. So, what did contemporary man think of Henry? Well, here we pretty soon hit the problem of the political influence of the chroniclers. So, here is an English chronicler writing after 1461, i.e. after the Yorkist Edward IV had come to the throne. The chronicler is commenting now on the state of England and Henry's governance before
2: Edward came to the throne. The realm of England was out of all good governance, for the king was a simpleton and led by evil counsellors, and owed them more than he had. His debts increased daily, but no payments were made. All the possessions and lordships that belonged to the crown the king had given away. For these misgovernances, and for many others, the hearts of the people were turned away from them that had the land in governance, and their blessings were turned to curses. Essentially, this writer was
0: heavily influenced, of course, by the propaganda of the Yorkist king of his time. The unashamedly Yorkist writers went further and attributed the failures of Henry VI to the Lancastrian deep moral malaise, i.e. the usurpation by Henry IV of the throne of Richard II. The results, according to them in Henry's reign, were unrest, internal war and trouble, unrighteousness, shedding of innocent blood, abuse of the law's sectarianism, riot, extortion, murder, rape, and vicious lying. Now, of course, this was during the period when Yorkist still fought Lancastrian. But when Henry, unaccountably, died in the Tower of London in 1471, the Yorkist writers were able to be a little more generous towards a dead adversary than they felt able to be towards a living one. And so they went back towards the traditional approach. The king, he was a pretty good egg
2: but the people around him, man, they were rotters. Evil people that were around the king were so greedy and did no good for the king's honour, nor of his rights, nor of the common good, while King Henry trusted them to do this and work for him in the time of his innocence. And these were the causes. That made the people to turn against him because of his false lords and never because of him.
0: Now, once Richard Third arrived in town, the rehabilitation of Henry gathered pace because Richard, usurper as he was, did exactly the same as Henry V had with Richard II. He dug the guy up and gave him a glorious home in Westminster. The thinking was that every dead king had a touch of popular veneration, and it couldn't harm to try and tap into that a bit. And as the new king in town, it was a bit easier to do.
2: So the story around Henry starts to be positively saintly. He was a man, simple and upright, altogether fearing the Lord God, and departing from evil. And how great his deserts were, by reason of his innocence of his life, his love of God and the church, his patience in adversity, and his other remarkable virtues, is abundantly testified by the miracles which God has wrought in favour of those who have implored his intercession.
0: Then we get to Henry Seventh, and the sky's the limit. Well, not quite, but now the story of the innocent man misled by his evil counsellors developed into Henry the Saint. Tudor historians waxed lyrical about his mildness, his love of peace, modesty, piety. None of them quite had the gall to call him a great warrior, decision-maker or leader, but Henry Seventh had him canonised by the Pope, made sure reports of miracles appeared... And by the late 15th century, Henry VI was the centre of a roaring pilgrimage trail. The Tudor historian Edward Hall, in his book of 1548, took issue with the Yorkist line. So the Yorkists claimed that the ultimate blame for the Civil War had derived from the Lancastrian usurpation of Richard II's throne. Hall's Tudor-oriented line was that the troubles came from the greedy ambitions and dissensions of the Yorkist nobility, and the machinations of those two malignant Frenchwomen, Joan of Arc and Margaret of Anjou. Which leads us to Shakespeare, where ultimately Henry VI is a saintly figure who sits aside from the action and seems to be divorced from responsibility for it. It's in 1530, in the late 16th century, from which the earliest portraits survive of Henry VI. There's a young one, where his face displays a complete lack of gorme and he looks like the kind of lad who would inevitably get picked last at school when getting the footy going in the lunch break. And there's also one of him in older age, where he seriously looks in trouble. Strained, anxious, ill. But in both of them, there's a message. Saintly expression, solemnly clasped hands. This is a saint we're looking at. Then we get to David Hume the Scottish 18th-century historian, famous for his anti-Whig views on constitutional history, claiming that English history was not just about a gradual evolution of a fine constitution into the finest constitution. And now we're back to a rather more political view of Henry, that it's all very well being impressed
2: with the prince's piety, but the job of princes is to rule. Henry was utterly incapable of exercising his authority, and provided he personally met with good usage – was equally easy, as he was equally enslaved, in the hands of his enemies and of his friends. His weaknesses and his disputed title were the chief causes of his public calamities. The Whig Victorians,
0: the likes of our Bishop Stubbs, did not know what to make of the 15th century. The Wars of the Roses made no sense to them whatsoever, impossible to square with the idea of a nice progression to the perfect state of limited monarchy. The Age of Obscurity and Disturbance, Stubbsy called it, throwing up his hands at disgust with a bunch of nobles just out for everything they could get. The entire 15th century was dismissed as, quote, little else than the details of foreign wars and domestic struggles. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it, 15th century. Then in the 20th century, history began to change. And although the view of Henry didn't necessarily change fundamentally, no one emerges thinking that he's the model of the perfect king, but different approaches emerge throughout historical study with the increasing conviction that moral judgments are not the job of historians and a firm belief in the greater use of sources as the primary technique, the same approach that Edward Gibbon had emphasised so strongly. And alongside that was the Marxist approach to history, which took a very different approach and gave a very different interpretation. And so in the interpretation of the 15th century as a whole, it was the hugely influential K.B. Macfarlane who presided over an explosion of research into the aristocratic society that drove the Troubles, and who placed the 15th century into the context of what drove its politics, the network of alliances and affinities of the great families. Macfarlane was pretty unequivocal in his context that given that politics was driven by the interplay of the aristocratic families, the king's role was to create balance and bring order. This king was a dipstick. He failed to do that, and therefore the whole shebang was his fault. Well, he didn't actually use the word dipstick, but he did rather delightfully say of Henry that second childhood succeeded the first without the usual interval. I have this image in my mind of RKB writing late at night in his rooms at Magdalen College, pushing back and swinging on his chair and breaking wind loudly with satisfaction as he thought of that one. That's what we do as historians. Next, along came Christine Carpenter in the 70s and 80s, and she said that this focus on the politics of the aristocracy is all very well, and yes, we can all agree, but isn't there something more? These people also believed in something an idea of how a realm should be run, how does that change the way we look at things? And as a result, we can see much more about the pressure Henry's rubbishness put on the body politic, and the way it warped and changed it. In the light of Carpenter's questions, you can see the Civil War as an attempt to deal with the problem of the king's incompetence, preserve the power and role of royal authority, and heal the body politic. It's not that everyone else doesn't agree with Macfarlane that Henry was pretty hopeless, but in the 20th and 21st century, there seems to have been three lines. There is the Henry was a loser and it's pretty much all his fault line espoused by Macfarlane. There is an approach that maximises the differences between Henry pre and post breakdown, which in 1453 coincides with England going off the rails. And finally, there's the really hard line that says... It's not just innocence and rubbishness, it's active incompetence. Henry had far more to do with day-to-day governance than you might think, and is every bit as rubbish as you've always thought, but nowhere near as innocent as you might have hoped. However far you blame Henry or blame circumstance, what is super clear is that Henry VI was no chip off the old block. He was easily led and unable to make decisions and swayed by the last person to speak to him. Like Dad, he was deeply, deeply pious, but rather than seeing himself as being divinely ordained with a mission to fulfil his destiny by arms if necessary, he saw nothing but horror in war. And he was desperate to make peace with France at any price and heal the divisions of Christendom. This was to have disastrous consequences if you take his father's view of life, and in fact was to contribute towards a pretty dreary future for Junior himself. But in the long run... It led to the end of the Hundred Years' War, so maybe in the end it was Junior that got what he wanted.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
0: Is the personalities that dominate the political scene. You've met most of them before, but let's remind you, since you frequently tell me that remembering all these names is a bit of a problem. Though far easier than all those Anglo-Saxon ones, Ethelworth the Unweird and all that. I miss those days. Things were simple, incomprehensible, but simple. Anyway, let's introduce some of the leading characters that will play on our stage for the next few years by seeing how they react to the challenges of a minority. Now, not least of the impressive things about Henry V were that as he agonised his way to a painful death, rather than whining and asking for another cup of tea and a warm towel, he sat up in bed and worked out what was going to happen next, notably with his eldest remaining brother, John, Duke of Bedford. And one of the reasons why we've not quite reached the high point in the English position in France is the loyalty and dedication of the people around Henry Sr., because the temptation in times of war to forget the rule of primogeniture for a while and pass over the royal baby must have been in folk's minds somewhere. But unlike Richard III, they resisted, and kept their collective hands out of the till. So while Henry Jr. concentrated on filling his nappies, a bunch of serious-faced men in Parliament acclaimed him King and Lord, ah, and then set about implementing Henry Sr.'s last wishes the first of these last wishes was to make Bedford Regent of France. Though this was something of a reversal, Bedford had notably been Henry's man in England up till then. But there's no doubt that Bedford was exactly the right man for the job and English fortunes in France would be directly related to his progress through life. As it happens, the death of the existing King of France, the Mad Charles VI, followed hard on the heels of the death of Henry V. Charles died in October 1422, and Bedford was the only prince present at his funeral. Bedford was a large, powerful man who would prove to have the same quality as his big brother on the battlefield. He was pious in the way that you needed to be pious those days, and he had a broad and deep interest in all matters cultural and artistic, a great collector and patron of the arts. He was a distinctive figure, with his hooked nose and appalling haircut, and while he may not quite have had his brother's charisma, He was more approachable and visible, and constantly visible in both Paris and Rouen. Many contemporary English and French chroniclers eulogised Bedford. Thomas Bassin, for example, described him as wise, humane and just. Bedford understood very clearly, in a way that his brother Gloucester did not quite seem to grasp, that English fortunes in France depended on two things. Their ability to present themselves as the legitimate heirs to the throne of France, and their alliance with Burgundy. He started on the latter with the Treaty of Amiens in 1423. This treaty did two things. It brought together Brittany, Burgundy and England into a tripartite alliance. Though it's a straw in the wind that after Bedford had cheerily waved goodbye, the Dukes of Burgundy and Brittany stayed on for another pint and agreed their own alliance. Which was to go back to the Dauphin's fold should either of them manage to be reconciled. Bedford probably didn't know that, but he was painfully aware of the fragility and importance of the Burgundian alliance, hence point two of the Treaty of Amiens, the marriage between him and Philip the Goods' little sister, the 19-year-old Anne of Burgundy. This marriage was to be the mainstay of the Anglo-Burgundian alliance, and the death of Anne in 1432 was to seriously undermine it. Anne and all her sisters actually were described as plain as owls, a slightly harsh comment and incredibly unusual for a chronicler to write about a noblewoman. But more importantly, she was intelligent, charming and tactful, and described as livelier than all the rest. All of these qualities allowed her to mediate between Bedford and Philip when things went wrong in a way that they would not be able to do after her death – and their pride and status would keep them apart and keep them unable to discuss those issues, and all of this had disastrous consequences. Anne's new hubby was 15 years older than her, but despite the age difference, they seemed to have had a happy marriage as far as one can tell these things from this distance. Certainly, they seemed to share the same interests, as Anne loved music, arts, and all the pageantry of the court, which in those days was essential. If you were a prince or a princess, you had to act the prince, be seen to be the prince. None of that holy-jumper-aristocrat sort of thing in days medieval no-siree. Bedford and Anne clearly trusted each other and formed a partnership. They always travelled together, which in those days was most certainly not a gimme. Think of Henry and his first wife Mary Bohoon, or Henry and Catherine. Two more events as examples of the way Anne's compassion won her admiration. In 1430, Joan of Arc lay in prison, awaiting trial and very probably death. Anne intervened, making sure her jailers did not mistreat her and went out of her way to have women's clothes made for her. Which sounds odd, but actually the accusation of wearing men's clothing was not the smallest of the accusations against Joan. And finally, the way that Anne lost her life. In 1432, a plague swept through Paris and Anne headed off into the streets and hospitals to show her sympathy and support for the inhabitants, but as a consequence caught the fever and died. But that's in the future. For ten years, Bedford and Anne built the acceptance of Henry's rule in France. It was a propaganda battle. The massive problem was that whatever happened, by tradition and by blood, Charles the Dauphin should be king of France now. This was a simple, straightforward message. The Dauphin was part of the existing royal family, he was native Frenchman, and persuading the French of anything other than his right to succession was a very hard task. Nonetheless, the English did have some cards to play. Henry had been chosen as the heir by the previous king. The Dauphin had committed a horrible crime in murdering the Duke of Burgundy and had been disinherited by a de justice as not fit to rule. Then there was that old, that old, old and oldest of chestnuts, the original claim to the throne of France by descent. The claim to the ducal crown of Normandy by dint of Billy the Conk. Bedford played on that particular harp like a virtuoso. And then they had some advantages in the possession of the symbols of French royalty at Saint-Denis and Notre-Dame. And in the fact of Henry's victories, they could demonstrate that the operation of God's will was on their side. It's easy to assume, with the benefit of hindsight, that English rule in France was doomed, but it was not necessarily so. And while Bedford and Anne held court together, they still had a chance of making it stick. So, we were talking personalities. The next guy to talk about is Humph, that is to say, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, Henry V's brother and Henry VI's uncle. Humph had been a leading commander under Henry. He'd captured the castle of Ivry, ejected the Dauphinist from the Norman county of Avranches, accompanied his brother on campaign, done some stints as keeper of the realm in England. So, on the face of it, pretty well trusted by Big Brother. But, funnily enough, he never really had an independent command. His brother did appear to keep him on a relatively short reign, didn't quite seem to hold the same level of trust as he did for Bedford and despite the impressively high opinion Gloucester had of himself, there was something not quite convincing. He desperately wanted everyone to acknowledge his great military successes and fancied himself an amazing model of chivalry. And yet he clearly lacked Clarence's boldness, Henry's incisiveness and clarity of purpose, and Bedford's cautious competence. The hard-faced, Dry-eyed captains that built Lancastrian power in France were not keen to follow him. That's not to say he was without talent or lacked brio, not a bit of it. He had a talent for whipping up public support. His relentless and unswerving opposition to peace with France would put him out of fashion for a while but firmly back there when it all crashed and burned. He was articulate and plausible, which was no doubt reinforced by his own belief in his own talents. Shy and retiring, he was not. In the end, his greatest contribution may have been in literary life. He was an enthusiastic supporter and patron of the Italian humanists, employed Italian men of letters at his court in miniature, and loved to debate and discuss ideas. Like everything about Gloucester, there's this feeling that it was mainly for show and bombast. In fact, he spoke no Greek himself, not much Latin actually, and it all felt a bit like posturing. But nonetheless, whether sincere or not, Gloucester did have an impact. And in the same way, without necessarily being the most successful politician, Gloucester was without doubt a player and not to be ignored. And it was his struggles with Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, that defined the domestic politics of the minority of Henry VI. Now we've talked about Beaufort before. His brother Thomas was the Duke of Exeter and one of Henry V's right-hand men. Beaufort himself was one of the richest men in England, given that Winchester was the second richest diocese in Europe. And at 47... He was an elder statesman with a long history of political power under Henry IV and Henry V. He'd fallen foul of the last Henry, but with a minority he had no intention of playing a subservient role any more. So, under Henry V's will, Bedford was to be regent of France during the minority. Gloucester, on the other hand, was given the role of tutela, or Lord Protector of the King and His Affairs. And oh dear, did this cause a stink or what? When Gloucester and Bedford arrived home, the will was opened and everyone listened carefully for what they got. Now, as far as Gloucester was concerned, it was an open and shut case. He was to be protector of the realm, and that meant he was to look after the king and all his affairs, such as filling his nappy, playing with his toys, teaching Latin, teaching him the value of a good forward defensive, bringing him up in the way of the lord and all that, and Oh, ruling the glorious country of England with all its income and fields and customs and merchants and parliaments and all. Brother Bedford, the lords, temporal and ecclesiastical, and the great officers of state, begged to disagree. There was distrust of Gloucester as being too young, too wild, too, well, untrustworthy. It was complicated by Bedford's own ambitions. As it stood, he was heir to the realm after little Henry. And as far as he was concerned, his authority as regent rested on that, not some poxy will from his brother, and he'd like it to be quite clear that Gloucester was in third place by some distance. So despite Gloucester's mutterings, what we get is a council of state. Well, we would have had a council of state anyway, but the point is that although Gloucester presided, his powers were very much restricted. The council consisted of the Dukes of Gloucester and Exeter, the three great officers of state, i.e. Chancellor, Treasurer and Keeper of the Privy Seal, and then five earls, five bishops and five barons or knights, thankfully not the baron knights. They essentially collectively acted as king. It all sounds very unwieldy, but the quorum was three officers of state plus four, and so it was workable. And it quickly became clear that it was Beaufort and his chums that ruled the roost. To him gathered the bishops and the officers of state. Gloucester had influence, certainly, in a lot of it, and he was not without his own chums, but Beaufort was ahead on points, let's put it like that. Next episode we'll find how all those guys work together. But for the moment it's the weekly word. Now just as I found a knight in shiny armour in the form of Kevin, so I have another knight in the form of author David Crystal. I think I might have mentioned David before. I'm sorry if I repeat myself, it wouldn't be the first time, and sadly it's not going to be the last time. But anyway, David wrote a lot of books and one of them is called The Story of English in 100 Words. Today's segment draws a lot from that book and I can hardly recommend it if you want to go and pick it up. A while ago, I think, I did an episode on the English language and we talked about how English is so flexible and nuanced because it often has very similar words with just a slightly different connotation. And that is because we have loan words from such a variety of sources. So... Skill and craft, for example, just subtly different words. And they come from different places. The old Scandinavian, skill, and the old English, craft. There's the delightful example I love to repeat of the social politics of food. The French words came from the top of the social tree, from the lord of the manor used to eating the stuff. Pork, mutton, beef whereas the words of the beasts themselves comes from the Anglo-Saxon underclass whose main experience was raising the beasts. Pig, sheep and cow are all Anglo-Saxon. Though, of course, pork went badly wrong. Around the Middle English years, the adjective porkish appeared as an insult for fatties, to be replaced by porky in the 18th century as an insult for fatties. In the 20th century, Cockney rhyming slang produced porky pie for lie. Worst of all, the Americans in the 1930s came to use pork as slang for something else. Which doesn't belong in a history podcast. But anyway, that wasn't what I wanted to talk to you about, so we'll move on. We like this choice of subtly different words, but it caused problems to boot. I don't know how many of you have anything to do with the law, but in the law, of course, being precise and unambiguous is the route to a happy life. Also, I'm told. Lawyers in the Middle Ages were no different to lawyers today. Decent people. Badly misunderstood. Overworked. Underpaid. And they had been used to dealing in Latin. Fine. Then the blessed Normans arrived and they had to work in French. Then blow me over if English didn't make the greatest comeback since Lazarus and suddenly we have to deal with English as well. The potential for confusion is enormous. They might use a French word, for example, in a legal document, the client interpreted it in English, or vice versa. Confusion all over the place. Then one bright spark had an idea, which actually had two benefits. Why not use both languages, both words? That will cover both buttocks. Plus, since lawyers used to get paid by the word, they'd actually earn more money. Result? Everyone's happy. Banzai. And so that's what they did. And the results are with us today. So, goods and chattels, an English word and a French word. Will and testament, an English word and a Latin word. Legal doublets, they call them. It then got extended to have doublets with the same language, just to make sure there was no confusion, and presumably to make the poor threadbare lawyer put food on the table. So, cease and desist. Null and void. Aided and abetted, all French words. Or, all English words, to have and hold, let or hindrance. Right, that's more than enough for one week. Next week, we'll cover the good bits of Henry VI's reign, which shouldn't take long. The coin and bronze mount competition seems to be interesting a number of you, so I have rather a lot of kind donators to thank. To my monthly donators first, who I dearly love, Slightly self-interestedly, I must admit, but I dearly love. Kathy, Jim, Matthew, Coolbreeze, Music, Janita, Brad, David and Tudor Queen. And my grateful thanks also to Clive, Roberta, Irwin, Craig, Timothy, Marilyn, Philip, Gary, Oscar, Keith, Raymond, Jordan, Anthony, Matthew, John, Robert, William, Bill, Joris, Richard, Morag. Thanks to all of you for listening, for your comments on the website, iTunes, Facebook and all that sort of thing. Good luck and have a great week.